ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper. Thanks for joining me as we meet the people and visit the places that make up A Big Country. This week, making whiskey on the high seas. We're meeting the Tasmanian distillers who put a barrel of their spirits onto an abalone fishing boat for a year-long adventure. They reckon that all that sloshing around and salty air has done wonders for the maturation of the alcohol. We'll hear about a career change from solving crime to working in slime when we find out what led a couple of retired police officers to set up a commercial snail farm in WA's southwest. And we're heading out for a beach walk with a man who's taking his pet dog and pet goat for a stroll. Benji the goat is drawing some interesting looks from onlookers, but he thinks he's just one of the dogs. Because he's with the dog or dogs all the time, he's, he's a dog with horns. That's how we treat him. He's very easy. And he, all the things you hear about, the horror stories, you know, clothes off the line and chewing trees and eating, none of that because he, don't, he does what the dogs do. Thank you, mate. We're not kidding around. We'll meet Benji and his owner a little later. First today, we start with another animal story, tapping into the healing power of horses. Reporter Tim Fuchs discovered how one woman's lifetime love of horses has led her to a chance to help others. Come on, boy. Elaine Delaney was born into a horse-loving family and spent her early years riding through the hills on the far south coast of New South Wales. My grandfather was an amazing, what I would call a natural horseman. Um, not that I had a lot to do with him, but he, I have that genetic, obviously. And he used to, he only had one arm. He had a withered arm from a, a swimming accident. And he would have a whip that he used to call the horses. So he would crack the whip and they would all come. Um, so I guess that's my first for sort of unconscious connection with horses. And then growing up, we just rode. We just rode around the mountains. Spending time with horses, the 78-year-old came to appreciate the effect they could have on human health. I'm very aware that there are many animals, and horses being one of the main ones, being used for mental health and, and other connections for people to allow them to be in a place of stillness or healing or health. Um, but for myself, I think it was just that we, had, we have grandchildren who get a lot out of being with the horses, and then just different friends and people coming out. And I see, I, I recognise the joy that that gives people and I guess it just unfolded from there. Well, I love, I, I sort of believe in doing what you love and loving what you do. And I love being with the horses. I, even if I didn't ride, I just love being with them. I'm 78 this year and I'm blessed that I still do ride. But um, just being with the horses. So it just evolved from there. And then I thought, well, this is actually, there's more. We can actually offer more. And that's how it all unfolded, I guess. Hello, I'm Tim Fuchs, and I'm chatting with Elaine, who, along with her husband, Mike, offers holistic horse therapy from their property near Crookwell on the New South Wales Southern Tablelands. She says being in the company of a horse is a special experience that can create a deep connection. For me, it's an instant connection to the natural world. Um, It's peace, it's stillness, it's a deep... um, contentment 
Um, and that happens fairly instantaneously. The touch of them, the smell of them, when they their nose is just like silk and their little horsey breaths and when they nicker to you and it's just, yeah, it's just a deep connection to the soul, I think, for most people. And I think for many people who are not now in that connection with the land and the natural world, it offers and opens up a space and a place where they can reconnect with that part of themselves. So people come here, what do they do when they get here? It varies. As I say, we have NDIS people, we have all ages and abilities and that varies. So I have a sort of a, a basically loose plan of what may happen when people come, but I allow it to unfold. Um, so when they come, we introduce them to the horses, we find out a little bit about um, what they might like to do with the horses are they feeling safe? Are they feeling comfortable? Are they relaxed around the horses? So then from there we would say, OK, would you like to groom the horse or would you like to pat the horse? Would you like to give the horse a carrot? We can show you how to feed the horse so that you're safe. Um, would you like to lead the horse? Occasionally at our discretion we do lead uh, mainly children around on the horse to give them that experience if we feel that that's safe and going to be something that's really lovely for them. Um, so it really depends, you know, on the person. Can you tell me about why people come here and, and, and why do people say, I think um, I need to try something new and experience a bit of time, time with horses? I think for many people who haven't been around horses, there's that fantasy or dream that they would love to be. They would love to be with a horse or pat a horse or, you know, just be around horses. So we offer that experience. And for others, I think, uh, for NDIS um, clients that we have come out, their carers are very aware that being with the animals is a huge benefit for them. So if we have the big wheelchairs, we have the wheelchairs on the outside of the round yard and the horses on the inside, and they lean over and they just touch, the horses touch the person on the body and their smile, I'll show you a photo later, but it's like the sun shining and breaking through. It's just this, this amazing joy that they get. Um, and yes, I think for families, they would like their children to have the opportunity to be out in this beautiful natural setting and to be around the horses and learn a little bit more about them because I ask them, do you know where a frog is on a horse? Um, no, do frog horses have frogs? You know, so little, silly little things that, um, that they're maybe not aware of. So they learn a little bit about horses, um, but it's just joy. It's just joy, the fascination of seeing someone who's actually um, able to drive the horse like Lily is today or just lead a horse and lead a horse where they feel safe, a big horse, or get the horse to go backwards and come towards them, get the horse to go in a circle. It's very empowering um, for someone, particularly a young person or a person who's never had adults who've never had anything to do with a horse, to think that, wow, I actually can communicate and the horse is actually listening to what I'm asking and doing what I'm indicating. Good boy, Princey. So started with beer, we needed some instant cash flow <laughs> uh, whilst the vineyard was growing and uh, yeah, and then moved on to a distillery as well. 
On Tasmania's east coast, Michael and Danielle Briggs have been expanding their alcohol-making business from beer to wine and spirits. It's not quite the last instalment, but it's the most most recent. There'll be more uh, more chapters to come as far as our story is concerned. But yeah, that's all for us to work out along the way. So yeah. The couple run Iron House Distillery alongside a brewery and vineyard. While making whiskey is a passion project for Michael, Danielle still has a full-time day job to support the business. Uh, well, I'm an occupational therapist, <laughs> so I still do that full-time on the side so that Briggsy can pursue his passion. Well, you've got a very good partner in life there. <laughs> 100%. I can't do it without her, so, yeah, without her there is there is no Iron House, so, yeah. So we're up at Ironhouse Point, we're just half an hour north of Bishano. Uh, used to be an old drover's hut there and that's where we're located and um, where we where we make all the good stuff. A lot of these distilleries are in the most beautiful spots. You've really done well with lifestyle choices. Yeah, look, lifestyle's a big part of uh, what we do that drives the passion, but to have the environment that we've got around us is what uh, creates the passion and the innovation that we do. So we talk about passion. What's your background? Did you come into this industry with uh, an alcohol background? Other than consumption, no. Um, I'm an actual landscape gardener by trade, so every distiller's got a, a sort of a, a completely obscure line Working. of work. Background. work where they've come from and it's not by chance it's just through design that we end up becoming distillers and that's what I was doing beforehand and here I am today. Hello I'm Fiona Breen and I'm chatting with Michael and Danielle who have been taking part in Whiskey Week celebrating Tasmanian whiskey and its producers. The pair have been working on a special drop that's been debuted for tasting during Whiskey Week. It's involved sending a batch of whisky to sea for a maturation process that Michael describes as a slosh method. Every year we try to bring something else and get a little bit more creative of what we do and how we uh, mature our whisky. And so this year specifically, we've we've taken some age whisky out of our distillery at Iron House Point that had been there for four years and then put it on an abalone fishing boat for 12 months. <laughs> What drew me to that was the fact that uh, the whole interaction with wood and the maturation process is just astounding and it's so mysterious that we don't really actually know. We, we sort of know what's going on inside that barrel, but we're not in control of that. So it was sort of good to sort of put it on a ship, send it to sea for 12, 12 to 18 months and let nature do its thing with it. So, yeah, that's been a really interesting uh, sort of experiment that we've done with it and it's produced some really, really good results. So there will be more chapters behind that, I'm sure, because um, the boat's name was actually called Maverick. So it really got the uh, the, the imagination going as far as uh, our, our designer and our label with Maverick. Mm. So. Danielle, now you're chief taster, mm -hmm. I believe. I am. Have you tasted this whiskey yet? I have. I had the pleasure of tasting it for the first time last night along with everyone else which was great and it was really well accepted so it's quite a, um, a full-bodied whiskey it's quite heavy so it was what do amazing. you think about it sloshing around in the barrel well, on an abalone fishing yeah. vessel for so 12 months our really good friend renison bell is the captain of the boat and he would send us a little bit of footage of what was happening at sea and we did ask him numerous times to check the plugs on the casks and make sure that that was all still secure because there were some big seas that he was 
rolling around in and you can imagine that that whiskey's just been sloshing backwards and forth and capturing all that beautiful, beautiful flavour out of those casks. Well, I can't imagine what that does. I mean, maybe aeration, sloshing around, banging up against Look, the wood of the barrel. It's it's that that contact with wood is what we're chasing and certainly the uh, the salt air. You can't get it any uh, rawer than that than actually floating around on the sea. So to actually have that influences coming into the, into the spirit has been, yeah, I guess a testament to the experiment that we, we put our hand to. So, yeah, it's, it's been a really good result. And What do you think has come out in terms of taste? Probably flavours inside from the wood that I probably wouldn't have got in a 12-month maturation process, like a, an, an extra 12 months. I think it would have taken longer under the conditions that it was sitting in a, up at Iron House Point in our bond store. So to actually basically extract a lot deeper into the wood through that slosh mythology um, <laughs> has, has been a testament to, yeah, to that theory. So this is what all the whiskey was like on those old tall ships when they brought whiskey mm. out from the UK, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. It's certainly replicating um, how it was. And to be able to do that in the current climate that we're in is, was, yeah, it was an absolute privilege and, an, and, and a great opportunity to be able to do it. So to take back what the pirates and, you know, the first sailors used to do, it's, um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite intriguing. Now, how's the, the whisky industry and uh, demand going for you? We've seen an absolute spike in, in, in the interest of Tasmanian whisky, and that's certainly been pioneered by the, by the early uh, um, distillers and the original distillers of the state. So to actually, to actually be a part of that and to see the growth within the industry, that's, that growth is certainly carrying through to every single business because everyone has their own character to their whisky and everyone's looking for that next, you know, that next character or that next personality in the whisky. So, yeah. Distillers Michael and Daniel Briggs from Iron House Distillery on Tasmania's east coast. They were chatting to Fiona Breen about the growth of the whisky industry in their island state, as well as a batch they've been working on that was matured in a barrel on board an abalone boat at sea. Before that, Tim Fuchs introduced us to Elaine Delaney, who runs a horse therapy program from her home in the New South Wales Southern Tablelands. You can read more on that story on the ABC homepage. Head to abc.net.au and look for A Big Country. I'm Claire Jasper with you for A Big Country. Still to come, a walk on the beach followed by morning tea at a local cafe. It's just an average day for Benji the goat, but it's bringing smiles to the faces of those he meets along the way. And we'll meet some farmers on a small property raising very small livestock. Reporter Ellie Honeybone visited Nick and Victoria Howe's property near Manjimup in southwest Western Australia, where the two former police officers are trying their hand at breeding snails. Victoria Howe says they've been blown away by the amount of interest in the common garden snail. We didn't expect it. We weren't sure of the demand at all. We've just found that excitement around having fresh escargot, fresh snails from Australia, from WA, from the beautiful southwest of WA. It's been a hit with chefs from Albany all the way up to Broome, over east and Singapore. Like, it's crazy. You guys are retired police officers. How did you end up here in Manjimup with a snail grow house? (laughs) Yes, yes. We wanted to find something sustainable to allow us to work from our property. We've got three small kids and we wanted to have a sort of fantastic life down here. So we Googled it. 
<laughs> we, uh, we literally just put the words in, what can I do on my small acreage? And I say small, 40 acres. I know it's not small in any, uh, in any way, but sort of down here in, in WA, it is small. Being from the UK, obviously the demand in France and Italy being vacations over there knew that snails was a thing, but just hadn't seen it here in Australia and I thought it'd be really interesting to look at. Started doing the research, realised that this was something we could definitely do and we just thought we'd give it a go and that's where it all started. A lot of people wouldn't realise that it's just your ordinary common brown snail. Yes, and that does scare people a fair bit. When my friends and family now tread on snails or poison them, they do feel terrible. They also realise that they're also treading on money, potentially. But yeah, yeah, your garden brown snail, petty is another name for it, and the helix exposure is another name. They are your edible snails. Traditionally, they over in sort of France and Italy, and they hopped on as pests and, and came over probably... 1800s if you like and uh, infiltrated WA. <laughs> you've experimented with this when since you've started we're sort of 18 months down the track we've, we're in a, a grow house now but you're planning a bigger and better shed but you had them under the house you've tried all sorts of different things by the sounds. Yes uh, snails traditionally are grown outdoors speaking to chefs they wanted a consistent supply of snails so snails hibernate for six months of the year we wanted to make sure that we were able to give us a consistent supply. So the only way to do that was to bring our snails indoors. We have tried a greenhouse, which was too hot. We've tried under a house, which was a bit too breezy. We then insulated under the house. We have had some pests. We've had to hit the temperature, humidity, light, moisture. All of those things has been a trial and error, but we feel like we've definitely had the found the optimum conditions now. In bearing in mind, we're doing this with no other help no one else is doing it so we've really had to figure out the best way and we believe that we've done that now and talk us through that so we've got shelving we've got a egg laying station over here we've got big ones we've got little ones lights are on mimicking summer daytime yes Originally, our snails start out on your vineyard, um, avocado orchard. Friends and family collected us the snails. They go into quarantine for about 30 days just to make sure they've not ingested anything, not got any pest, uh, diseases. Pests are sort of eliminated in that time. The snails are then popped in. The biggest snails, we want the one, they're the ones we want to breed. We separate those. We give them an area where they can eat and drink they also have pots which they lay their eggs in. We take those eggs over to our egg box where sort of 18 to 21 days after they've been laid, they hatch. We then take those babies and put them in a separate area where we watch them grow. And that's really the cycle is having the big snails, our big babies and mating and then growing. We haven't quite got to the selling stage because you're you know, figuring out the lifespan, the length of time, but you've got chefs and restaurants hounding you is that right we have got a wait list yes we've had some fantastic chefs and restaurants contact us really excited about the prospect of having snails on their menu we don't know how quickly we're going to be able to supply the demand that we have so that's where unfortunately the wait list has had to come in and the idea is to be able to supply to anyone that wants them doesn't seem to be a huge amount of cost output at this point you got some electricity and how are you feeling about costs and profits I guess one day 
Uh, that's what's also really exciting about it. Yeah, the outlay hasn't been huge. It's been more of time and time is money. But I think when you're when you've got a vision and you've got an idea, any work you do doesn't really seem like work. And that's what's been exciting for us. It's just been added to our daily chores. The sale of the snails, you know, being fantastic protein source, being the only snails, fresh snails in WA. Yeah, they can fetch a decent price. There have been other people that have sort of had the, had a go at this in WA. Some are trying to get in more exotic breeds and having struggles with that. Other people have tried and moved on to other things. Is that right? Yep. Spoken to as many people I could hunt down on <laughs> on the internet that had had any sort of dealings with snails and for sure underlying from everyone I've spoken to is it's this is such a fantastic idea it's surprisingly not done more you know there is a bit of work to it and I think a lot, maybe some people were doing it as a bit of a side hustle but we've taken all of their information that they were so gracious to share with us and realised that it is something we could do commercially. i got to ask, when you guys met at Police Academy in the UK, did you ever think you'd be farming snails in Western Australia? <laughs> Definitely not. I'm not really sure what we thought was going to happen, but that's what's fantastic about our family. We take the ball by the horns and run with it and enjoy it. It is, uh, yeah, really far away from policing, but it's, it's exciting. It's something new, and I think that's what's keeping us in, excited. It's been a hard day at the office, yeah. <laughs> mate, it's a hard day at the office for a goat. It's a sunny winter's day, and at North Haven Beach, south of Port Macquarie on the New South Wales mid-north coast, there's a site that's turning a few heads. Setting out for a beach walk are Benji, the goat, and Bosun, the collie cross, with their owner, Gary Angel. He says Benji is a very well-behaved and gentle goat. He loves his beach. He doesn't. He loves the dunes and the beach. He doesn't go in the water for obvious reasons. They drown pretty quickly. But uh, he loves his beach. He meet, meets a lot of new friends on the beach, don't you, mate? Loves the dogs. So, yeah, no, he loves the dogs. Him and the big dog, in particular, during the day, they're asleep here in the sun, just cuddle up in the sun. Yeah, no, they're good. And this bloke, he keeps him on his toes, of course. Bosun, come here. Because he's with the dog or dogs all the time. He's he's a dog with horns. That's that way we treat him. He's very easy, and he, all the things you hear about, the horror stories, you know, clothes off the line and chewing trees and eating, none of that, because he, do, he does what the dogs do. Pretty, don't you, mate? Yeah, they're all, who are those people over there, Bench? Yeah. Who are those people? He's very affectionate. He'll give you a nuzzle, don't you? He'll give people a nuzzle and a cuddle and rub with the horns, don't you? He's very popular. Hello, I'm Emma Siossian, and I've joined Gary and his beloved pets for today's beach walk. Benji and Bosun do a bit of kidding about on the sand before it's time to walk up to the local beach cafe and enjoy some morning tea. The North Haven Beach cafe owner, Sheldon Young, says Benji is a very popular customer. Everyone loves Benji. He's so polite, he's so mellow, um, he's just something different but yet behaves like any normal pet. And so everyone wants to go and have a pat and a chat with Benji. He loves his fruit toast, his special fruit toast, and he's very gentle and he takes it very kindly and when it's done, it's done. He doesn't, he's not rude, doesn't butt you for more. While Benji might be a goat with a lot to gloat about, life wasn't always this good. He started out during a tough time of drought on a farm at Armadale in inland New South Wales. 
Benji got him in 2018, terrible drought conditions in those days. And um, he was on a property that um, he'd been neutered, so he had no commercial value. And they had no food, uh, and he was getting a pretty hard life from the female goats. He had no commercial value, so the owners were looking forward to a good home for him. So we said, we can do that, and here he is. Uh, until he came over the Great Divide, he'd not seen anything green. And is he part of the household in your oh, house? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He doesn't live in the house, but he comes in. Um, he's toilet trained, he's house trained. Um, and he, at night time, not every night, but some nights, he just stands at the table where the wife and I are having dinner and he might get a bit of pumpkin from me and a bit of cabbage from my wife or vice versa. Uh, very well-mannered, very well-mannered. And as you see, we've trained him so that if we tell him to go and pee on the grass, he goes and pees on the grass. Down the, down the steps, pees on the grass, don't you, mate? Benji is considered by most to be a very handsome goat and his long hair and goatee are in very good shape. Once a month he goes through the dog wash or thereabouts, um, which he loves because everything is at the right temperature. Um, and he loves the hair dryer that finishes the whole thing. The rest of the time he's just on the beach. Um, he, he doesn't mind being brushed. It's, it's a bit difficult to brush his rear end because they're a bit sensitive about that. But um, yeah, he might get brushed once a week or once. Uh, but he, like, he's, he's, he's a very healthy goat. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. He's quite healthy. This affectionate and gentle goat bringing smiles wherever he goes. Oh, there are a lot of people in this town who have got a lot of enjoyment out of Benji and relive stories of their mothers and fathers and family and farms they were on when they had goats. And uh, oh, So Benji's brought a lot of joy to the town. Bye. Yeah. He's, he's having a very good day. Oh, thank you. It's a beautiful day to be a yeah, a good day to be a goat. <laughs> Come on, this way. Gary Angel, who lives on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, where he regularly walks his pet goat, Benji, much to the delight of locals. Emma Ocean brought us that story, and you can see Benji. If you head online to the ABC homepage, there's a very cute video of him taking a stroll along the beach. Just look for the A Big Country program page. That is the show for today. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.